Hello and welcome to Landings with a Flare, the podcast where we supplement and support flight training. This is Captain Teresa. This episode will be a pilot ground school lesson in the format of a guided discussion. This conversation was recorded on the audio platform called Clubhouse. You will likely hear some variation in audio quality as speakers tune in from around the world. Many of our ground school lessons include handouts, which you can find along with other resources in the podcast show notes. They are also on our website, landingswithaflare.com. We hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Welcome aboard. Welcome as we speak about crosswinds. Crosswind landings specifically are the hardest type of landing. If landing is one of the hardest maneuvers, then crosswind landings are probably the hardest version of that. So first of all, let's talk about a very basic crosswind landing. A crosswind landing is done with a side slip, but before we talk about a side slip, let's talk about what a slip is and what the difference is between a forward slip and a side slip. A slip is uncoordinated flight, and that is what happens when the pilots move the ailerons in one direction and the rudder in the opposite direction. Normally, it's a bad thing, but it could be used strategically. If a side slip is used for a crosswind landing, what is a forward slip? Just because people tend to get those confused. Or why would you do a forward slip? If you're too high, you can do a forward slip. Yes, thank you, Captain Shanita. A forward slip is something that produces a lot of drag on the airplane. And then that drag is what you can use if you are too high and you need to lose altitude. So that is the purpose of a forward slip. And the main characteristic that you will notice on the forward slip is that the nose of the plane is not pointed in line with the runway. It's normally pointed pretty far off to one side. And that is a forward slip. That, if a forward slip, the nose is pointed off the runway, then on a side slip, which is a crosswind landing, where should the nose be pointed? That should be aligned with the runway. So that's the difference. If the nose should is intended to be aligned with the runway, that's a side slip. A characteristic of a side slip is that one wing is down and one wheel is, the w- corresponding wheel is down and you'll land on one wheel first then the next back wheel, if you have a traditional tricycle gear plane, and then the nose wheel. So it's kind of like a one, two, three, main, main, nose kind of landing. Now, you cannot do a side slip and land like that if there's no wind. You have to have a crosswind for that to work out. The slip isn't so much about you in relation to the runway as it is about your plane in relation to the wind. So a forward slip is where the plane loses altitude rapidly because of drag and the nose is not aligned with the runway center line. A side slip is a crosswind landing and one wheel will touch, one back wheel or main wheel will touch before the next main wheel. Okay, 
why is it partly important for the wings to stay down? If there was a strong crosswind and the pilot didn't keep that windward wing down, what would happen if the wind got underneath the wing? Enrique? Your aircraft could roll over. Uh, the wind could lift uh, way past the limits to, to be controlled. And your aircraft could be ending up in a roll. Yes. So a pilot should always be aware to not let the wind catch underneath that one wing. Even if some, maybe the pilot has to take out some crosswind correction, they never want to take it out to the point where the wind is going to catch. If that is a side slip, let's break down how to do it. It's really important to know what the job is of the ailerons versus the rudder. The ailerons bank the airplane. And that means that their job, in this case, is to make the plane stay positioned over the center line of the runway. However, if you were just using the ailerons, then the nose of the plane would not be pointed straight down the runway. It would be pointed to one side because of how the wind was coming in. So then what points the nose? What forces the nose to point in the right direction if you can't use the ailerons for that? Destiny J. The rudders. Exactly. So the ailerons position you in relation to the, the being centered up on the runway, but then the rudder itself swings the nose around so that the nose is pointed down the runway. And because you have these two almost opposite control inputs, that is why that one wing and the wheel drop, and that is what the different job is on each one. Now, one of the things that you want to avoid is side loading. Who wants to explain what side loading is and how that could damage an airplane? Okay, side loading means that the plane is drifting sideways when it touches down on the ground. Most planes are not designed to handle that sideways movement. Some are special examples. You can have something called the air coop. There are certain jets that are able to do that. But most planes should not be drifting sideways because the tires are very weak on that side loading. All right, let's talk about crabbing versus side slip. Crabbing, who would like to describe what crabbing is? June, what is a crab? I did that in my first solo. So it's actually, you're more like you're driving the supercar on the runway and drift it on the side and make horizontal move instead of vertical, or instead of follow the center line of the runway and makes you damage your tire for $200. Ah, ooh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry that happened on your first solo. So a crab is what you said. A crab is when the nose is pointing in one direction, but the plane is traveling in the other direction. Crab is a, not a good way to land unless your plane was very specifically designed for it. But when a pilot is flying in the pattern and they are coming in on final approach, it is normal and it's good procedure to be at a crab at a higher altitude. A pilot at some point in the crossman landing has to transition from the crab to the side slip. So they have to transition from having a coordinated plane in the crab 
where the plane is just kind of pointing off to the side, but still drifting in the right flight path or the right direction. And then they have to go from that to that side slip with that one wheel down, one wing down kind of configuration. This is one of the biggest causes of debates in aviation. The question is, when should a pilot transition from the crab to the side slip? I'm willing to take opposing arguments, and let's talk about the extremes and then maybe figure out if we can meet in the middle. So I want to start with pros and cons of the early slippers, the ones that as almost as soon as they turn final, maybe they're four or 500 feet off the ground in a small plane, they put the plane in a slip. What would the pros and cons of that be? And let's start with Omar. I was clapping because this is what I teach. Final, slip all the way down on the center line, align all the way down. Pros is you're less likely to flip your plane over. You know, you don't have to adjust in the final moments. You don't have to keep like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a stable approach. You're, you're always aligned with the center line. And it's, it just gives you a, a good landing. And like the aileron adjustment, the slower you get, the more you add aileron. So it's like, it's, it's, it's like a maneuver. It's a full process rather than just grabbing down and being, you know, and the side picture is wrong. And then you come down and then at the last moment you add rudder, maybe you add too much left rudder or whatever it is you're correcting and then you side load the plane so yeah the, i don't see any cons of doing it honestly but yeah the pros and why i teach it is that okay so what you are saying is that it's a type of being stabilized the sooner the the student especially sets it up the more time they have to figure out if it's correct. Okay, I will take very respectful pros or cons. I believe I saw Enrique next, and then I saw another microphone flash. I don't have a, a specific preference because pretty much that depends on the type of aircraft that I'm flying. If it's a low-wing aircraft, for example, a Piper Cherokee, I feel more comfortable by doing the crab and on short final turning that into a side slip. Just makes me more comfortable. On a Cessna, on a high wing aircraft, I sometimes I, I have to do the crab as well, but my, but my 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 transition point would be a little bit higher. I don't feel the same need to crab and change to a side slip like I feel on the on the Cherokee for in this example. Okay, so you're saying like you you feel you can do it well if it's lower. But uh, Murdad, do you have comments on if uh, that uh, the pros and cons of doing it early on with transitioning? I so I don't fly that way, and honestly, I haven't given it much thought. But just off the top of my head you're flying uncoordinated at the slowest part of your flight. And I don't know if there would be a concern with that, especially if you're kind of really focused on drifting and not watching your airspeed, that that's not a great place to be uncoordinated. Okay. And I, Omar, go ahead. Did you want to follow up on that? Yeah. I want to, I just saw a video on YouTube and it's, and, and, and it was a DPE explaining the good uncoordinated and the bad uncoordinated. So a slip is not dangerous. If you stall in a slip, the plane will correct itself. But if you stall in a skid, then you will spin. 
yes, you are uncoordinated, but you're correcting for the wind. Your your plane is aligned with the runway. We're trying to have a controlled crash into the runway. Yeah, I would always slip. And yeah, I say even if you stall on a slip, it's not dangerous like stalling on a skid. Are you talking about the Joe Casey video? I think it was, what was it? Takeoff or like something taking like off. That? Yes, yeah, yes, I, I yes. No, that video. Yes, yep. Yeah, that's pretty. Cool. That, that's a really valid point. You would basically level in case you stalled instead of dropping the wing further, right? I know an aerobatic pilot who used to say there is never any reason to skid an airplane, but there might be reasons to slip one. Uh, Johnny, go ahead. Whew. My God, such a great point. <laughs> So I, I've been through that aerobatic training with uh, APS, All Performance Solutions, and they show you in very real time the difference between a slip, slipping stall and a skidding stall. Never really want to ever skid an airplane. But uh, to, to your point, to this discussion, for the record, Johnny Pickett is a low slipper. When, I, when I'm in a crosswind landing, I do slip at a very at a, at a low altitude, about 50 feet. That's the technique. I'm comfortable with that. Because I like to have it crabbed out there into the wind and letting the aircraft do a lot of the work. Then get down at the bottom and I'll slip it into uh, my landing profile. But that's my technique. That's what I'm comfortable with. And it works for me. Philip. Yeah, I'm keeping it diplomatic here. Uh, depends on wind, uh, direction, speed, and of course the books, the different aircraft types. Because what you may can do on one aircraft will ruin the other aircraft. Also a very good point. I'll tell you a little bit about what I believe the pros and the cons are of doing it very early. And then we're going to flip the conversation and talk about doing it at the last minute. And then we'll talk about maybe some moderation in between. So for those who go into the slip really early on, the main argument is what Omar said. It's it helps often a new pilot get set up early. It could be considered to be a type of stability. Now, an argument against this is when you go beyond beginner-level winds and you have strong wind, there are a few things that could happen. The first one is you may not have enough rudder to correct for the wind at that high of an altitude, maybe you know 400 feet or 300 feet off the ground, because the wind can be a lot stronger at 400 feet above ground than it will on the actual ground. Sometimes the wind, well, first of all, there might not be enough rudder to correct for it. But also, if the wind is changing a lot, it might not be as stable as the pilot thinks because the inputs at 400 feet are very different than the inputs they would end up with anyhow. You might run out of rudder or you might not really be putting in the same amount of input all the way down. And then probably the last argument that I hear against it is that the passengers are often uncomfortable. So there is this strange sliding sideways kind of feeling that the passengers get. And some passengers are really cool about it, but others just probably don't like that as much. Those are the pros and cons of the early transition. But let's talk about the pros and cons of the very, very, very late transition where the plane is almost entirely in is as well into the flare. And then the pilot just kind of brings the nose around right at the very last moment, right before the wheels touch. 
Does anyone want to go ahead with pros or cons? Philip? Yeah, especially with strong crosswind next to the max and to the limits. That might be a good technique so that you don't get blown away laterally. Okay, so that might be a pro is, uh, is you might need, in favor of it, you might need to wait a long time because the wind is just so, so strong. Any other pros or cons? Verdad. Some of the pros, I think, is that you're, you can focus more on your alignment as you work down. Like you said, the winds usually change quite a bit between short final and, and when you turn base the final. So a, a lot of times at 200 feet, I might be like, this is going to be a go around. And then at 10 feet, it's like, oh, this, this isn't a big deal at all. So you can kind of just focus on your glide slope, keeping your drift in check. Um, the cons, there, there's a lot of changes you have to make very close to the ground. So you got to have a coordinated flare, kicking out the crab, you know, dr- dropping a wing the right amount, still keeping track of that lateral drift. So so there, there's a lot that happens in a very short period of time. And if you're not comfortable with doing all of that in kind of the same motion, you know, buying yourself some more time by doing it earlier, you know, there's certainly a benefit to that. Yeah, that's a good point. Some pilots just believe it's easier. Some of them, for example, so the wrong reason to do it is if you are using it as a crutch. Maybe you don't really know how to do a proper side slip. And so you think that you can just cheat by crabbing the plane all the way to the runway and then just forcing the rudder to straighten it out right at the end. That would be a bad reason to do it if you, if just because it's a crutch because you don't know how to do a side slip and a landing. And the problem with that is that the plane, if the plane is adjusted at the very last moment without, with just the rudder and not the aileron, it will be traveling sideways, which we really want to avoid and that can cause weakening and damage on the plane. That One of the cons is that a lot of people do it too late and then they're really drifting sideways and they're not drifting straight when they do it. And then like Murdad said, another con is that there is a lot happening in the flare and that's a lot to pay attention to at the last moment. Okay, so now let's talk about where we actually do it. So I personally, I say don't do it incredibly early and don't do it incredibly late but it is mostly pilot technique, pilot choice, and depends on your plane where you actually do it. Would anyone like to share where they do it? June. Uh, yes, I usually, uh, after I turn the final, if I am really high, I'll do the side slip. But when it's 500 AGL, I set stabilized approach. Just fix for the crosswind, that's it. Uh, the thing is, uh, in Canada, uh, our flight exam, we have a requirement that for CPL student, you have to be stabilized 500 AGL. If you are not stabilized on the 500 AGL, you landed, you failed. So that's the one thing that you keep in mind to in order for student to always have that habit. If you after 500 AGL, if you're not stabilized and you're trying to keep side slip and on the final, on the just barely touching the ground and you fix back, it usually damages the gear and tires. And some students are also having the bounce landing. So we prefer to do the 
stabilized before 500 AGL, but before, uh, after, like way before the 500 AGL, you can do whatever you want to lose altitude and lose the airspeed. Okay, interesting. And that is definitely an opinion. Uh, it just depends on where you are. Omar. Captain, I want to place an argument here because I've seen this negative transfer of learning, especially from transitioning from private to instrument training. I was taught at first to crab and then correct, like right over the runway. And then uh, I actually learned how to slip all the way down from base to final when my chief pilot, he was an AV P3 commander and he's a very experienced flight instructor. He taught me to like, after, like on your base to final, you're aligned with the center center line and you're slipping down just aligned with the center line and then i realized this that students struggle on instrument approaches and uh we have also taken into consideration that professional flying is mostly instrument approaches for you to execute a nice localizer you will have to use the slip all the way from the final approach fix which is sometimes 1100 agl or 1500 agl depending Ooh, that's controversial. Most pilots that I know professionally will crab until they can see the runway visually on an instrument approach. Johnny? Definitely 100% agree with the crab until I have the uh, in the runway environment. Yeah, and uh, did I see, I believe I saw Shanita, Captain Shanita. He did. I put in the, uh, I switched from a crowd to a slip. I do it when I'm past the runway threshold. That's when I transition. Okay, yep. And uh, Philip, go ahead. Captain Philip, you're a captain. No, no, not yet, but the first officer. But anyway, um, on the 777, for example, you can, you can like fly in with a hanging wing. You can decrep during your flare, but you can also decrep after main wheel touchdown. But uh, because the the triple seven is, is is like built like a tractor, it's really built tough. But for for example, on the A three thirty, you should not do a decrep after uh, main wheel touchdown. Uh, correction, yeah, main wheel touchdown, because that can harm the aircraft. So it really depends. There is definitely a difference between jets and small airplanes. Some jets can basically just land side oh in a crab. And other jets are not able to side slip safely for very long. But in a jet, most jets have swept back wings. So that uncoordinated side slip is just not good. And a lot of them are very worried if about a lot a lot of them can't bank much near the ground. The CRJ that I fly is limited to eleven degrees of bank. So I'm always worried about scraping a wingtip on the ground if I have too much of a side slip. But a jet, when they transition from a crab to a side slip, is often done at the very last minute. And it's because the plane has more momentum, It's because it's heavy, it's less likely to be side, uh, side slipping quite as much. And if it does, the gear is stronger. So jets are a little bit different, but in a small airplane... There are different opinions. I would say it for me, when I was a flight instructor, as long as my students did it early enough that they could establish that they were truly in a good side slip without drifting sideways. So as long as they were truly aligned with the runway center line, 
then they had set it up early enough. For me, it was often around maybe like 100 feet, maybe even a little bit lower than that. And But it was, or maybe with a new student, it was a little higher than that and, and a light wind. But it was whatever that pilot needed to make sure that the plane was drifting forward and not drifting sideways. Any other thoughts or comments on that? Captain Anamesh. I want to follow up on what Captain Phillips said. Also, you have to be very careful about how much you're banking. So that's why most of the jets, they follow the crab technique all the way because like for 737 and 777, anything more than eight degrees of bank on control column, the spoilers get activated and you don't want that to happen because then you get you land in different situation altogether then you have to increase power and you have more bank and especially in the crosswind with the swept back wings that's why it's always preferred for jets to uh, follow that crab all the way and not to use much of aileron yeah so jets are different I would say, in conclusion, use your technique for your plane, your local area, your flight school. But at the end of the day, just make sure that you're not drifting sideways when you land on the runway, unless your plane was designed for that. And there are some examples. And Murdad. I actually have flown an air coupe. Those things have trailing link landing gear. You don't have rudder in that. And you can more or less plop it down at whatever speed you want. It, it's a really, it's a really easy plane to fly, but it's really hard because if you're classically trained, like all of us are, it, it's really uncomfortable at first to do that. Yeah, I agree. I have flown an Aerocoop. Every story I have about an Aerocoop is a crazy story, and that's something to ask me another time, Captain Shanita. For the people out there who are new to crosswind landings, or you know, you have your max. Like, oh, I'm comfortable landing in eight knots across wind. Go, if it's a windy day, go out with uh, a instructor or someone who's experienced and get those practice in. Because it, make, it make, make, I say to me, it makes you like a real good pilot. You can land in uh, 15 knots, 20 knots. I think my max so far is 30 knots across wind. Ah, yeah. So that brings up a good point about personal minimums. We have talked about how to do a crosswind landing. And I want to follow up on what Captain Shanita said about personal minimums, knowing what your limits are and that type of thing. I think she was kind of alluding to that. So what are some ways that we can calculate a crosswind to understand how strong it is? Well, so you can, you know, we talked about slipping versus crabbing. You can do a test slip at whatever altitude on your way down. And if you find that the bank angle that you have to dial in to stay on course is just something ridiculous, you might decide that whatever that wind value is, is not suitable for your landing. That's a good point. I used to do low passes over a runway when it was really windy, just to see how strong the wind was. Who else would like to speak about determining the strength of the wind? I'm going to go with Enrique. That's not the precise math, but to know how, how strong the crosswind component on your landing and approach is, I would use a rule that says zero to fifteen degrees to fifteen degrees of relative wind I would consider a full headwind. Fifteen to forty-five degrees I would consider half of the wind intensity. And above forty-five degrees I would start treating that as a full crosswind. 
Ah, yeah, that's a quick rule of thumb. I know some like that. They use just slightly different numbers. Anyone else want to speak about determining the strength of a crosswind? Captain, I would I would talk about like there's the charts and there's the calculators, the E6B, and you can put the runway and the wind and the gust and they would give you an exact number. That's a way. You know, I always have that handy on my, my iPhone. It's an app. You download it and you have it ready. But I would like someone was talking about the bank. I would test my rudder because I will I think I would run out of rudder doing a crosswind because the slower you are, you will you need more rudder than bank, than ailerons, I would say. Yes, the rudder is often the limitation, running out of rudder. And Omar, I really like your point about just using a standard chart to determine it. A lot of times pilots will put them on kneeboards or perhaps just an application now that you can have on your phone. Philip, did you have a comment? Yeah, it's also about experience, and also experience on the associated aircraft type because the wind also during approach, short final, and maybe touchdown might differ and in direction and speed. And maybe you also, so uh, you're going to feel some gusts. So in the end, yeah, it's also about experience and training and also knowing the associated aircraft. So it's like a, a bit of everything. Yes, and as a pilot gets more experience, their personal minimum will change. Captain Shanita. I've been in and out, but have we talked about um, landing with a little bit of fast airspeed and dusty crosswind landings? You know, we haven't. Let's, let's talk about that right after this. That is a really good point. Long story short, there are different ways to calculate crosswinds. You can use a table to calculate it. Or you can use a rule of thumb like the one Enrique uses. I use a rule of thumb similar to that. And this is something I learned as a student. It works better if you can write it out on a board. Long story short, all of this is actually based in trigonometry, mathematics. But to simplify it, what we said, if the wind is coming from 30 degrees off the runway, you take half of the wind component. And we would write one half on the board. And then we would write 30 degrees. And so we would end up writing one, two, three. So then if it is coming from 40 degrees off the runway, we would take two thirds. So we would write two thirds on a board and then we would write 40 degrees. And same with 50 degrees of the wind coming off at 50 degrees you guessed it, you should take three quarters. So we would write three, four, five on the board. And then anything beyond 50 degrees, you should pretty much take the whole, the whole wind as your crosswind. So that was, again, just one quick little math formula that we would do. Enrique? No, if you just want to do the fancy math on this one, you just have to calculate the sin of the angle from the wind that you have. So as you said, uh, when you have 30 degrees, you are dealing with the scene of 30 degrees, which is one over two, so half. Yeah, yeah, the sine. So we talk about sine, cosine, tangent. All of us may or may not remember that from math class. That's actually what it is. Once you have determined how strong the crosswind is, probably from some weather report on the ground, then you need to determine if it is at or below your personal minimums. 
pilots are strongly encouraged to know what their personal minimums are. That means that if you're a pilot, maybe you won't fly in less than five miles of visibility in a 3,000-foot ceiling or something like that. One of the most important personal minimums, even if you only have one, is probably knowing the strongest crosswind that you can handle in a given airplane. And the FAA has a wonderful pamphlet on the internet. It's been around for years. It's called the Personal Minimums Checklist. And I have a link to that on the handout. The theory of personal minimums is that you decide what your minimums and maximums are before you are under pressure. So I do strongly encourage that. Any comments on that before we talk about more specific techniques? Omar. I would also remind you guys that some aircrafts are rated for a specific limitation on crosswind. So make sure that you're not exceeding the limitation of the aircraft. With that said, the Cessnas, for example, doesn't have a limitation. It has a maximum demonstrated, which is the test flight, the certification flight of the plane. So it's not actually a limitation. You would probably be able to land a little bit over 15 knots maximum crosswind, but it's just a demonstrated. So make sure that you're legal with your aircraft limitations. Ah, great, great point. So a lot of books have something called a maximum demonstrated crosswind in the manuals for the planes. That means that's the most the manufacturer essentially guaranteed or proved with a test pilot that the plane would be safe. It's not illegal to go above that, but it might but you're just not guaranteed anything. Philip yeah, with the demonstrated thing, it, it's somehow a limitation because when you try it with uh, above that demonstration thing and you crash, you're going to be in big trouble. And also I want to mention is that crosswind uh, limitations can also vary depending on the um, the runway situation or contamination. Oh, yeah, that's a great point. That takes care of personal minimums. And now I want to go on to the really good point that Shanita brought up. There are techniques when you are landing in a strong crosswind for perhaps giving your rudder more authority and also helping counteract gusts. So one of them, as Shanita mentioned, is that it is a good idea to fly a bit faster when you have a gusty day. And because flying faster does two things. First of all, if it's gusty, which means the wind is changing direction or speed, then it actually helps prevent you from stalling. It gives you a better margin. But also, even if it's just a nice steady crosswind, coming in a little bit faster can give your rudder more authority with the wind. A lot of pilots, when there's a really strong crosswind, and I'm talking about small general aviation planes. Well, in a Cessna, instead of landing with 30 degrees of flaps, I might just land with 20 degrees of flaps. So they might land with fewer flaps, fly faster on approach, and then do not flare quite as much at the end. And that basically means that there's as much rudder authority as possible or as much air flowing over the rudder. Now, the downside of that is that you did come in faster and what do we know about the length of the landing if you come in much, if you come in faster on the landing? 
the learning role will be longer as well. So you need to be sure that you have enough runway to stop. Yes, you will have significantly more runway length that you need to use up if you come in fast. But sometimes that is how pilots do it in a really strong wind. They basically, I, I call it flying the plane onto the ground. They don't even pitch up a lot toward the stall. They just fly the plane until the wheels touch. And then as far as gusts go, there is a formula that's just a popular formula. It's not, it's not mandatory. But there's a formula for how much speed to add when the wind is gusting. I'm pretty sure we all use it. Would anyone like to share what that formula is? Captain Shanita. So you take um, the sustain, or you take the gust from the sustained wind, divide it in half, and then add that to your approach speed. Yeah, yeah. So you take the gusting factor and subtract your sustained wind. So let's say that it's 14 knots gusting to 24. 24 minus 14 is 10, and then half of that would be 5. So then you can add that to your final approach speed. Within limits, again, if you add too much speed, at some point you are just going to use a lot of runway. But the nice thing is adding that little bit of speed does help prevent from a stall. Does anyone have comments or anything they'd like to add for today? Omar. Captain, I just want in 30 seconds, I want to summarize. We talked about a lot of details about crosswind landing, but I just want to, for newer pilots, student pilots, I want to just summarize it in a, in a way that can be easier to fly. So simply crosswind landing, aileron into the wind, opposite rudder. The slower you get, the more connect, correction you need. So the more aileron you're going to add and the more opposite rudder. and Aileron into the wind, opposite rudder is called a slip. And the slower you get, even on rollout, make sure to add the aileron correction in so you don't get off the center line on rollout when you're taxiing, like literally on the ground. Yeah, other than that, simply, yeah. So ailerons into the wind, opposite rudder. Ooh, that is a great point. That I, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Remember, after you land, as the plane is decelerating down the runway, you should be putting in more crosswind correction as the plane gets slower. And so for a taxi in a wind, we have to turn the ailerons all the way to one side in a small plane. And so it's normal when a plane comes in after a crosswind landing, and maybe the planes are turned a few degrees to one side, the pilot should then turn them all the rest of the way into the wind after landing. So they give it more aileron correction. Good, good points. This is Captain Teresa with a post-episode debriefing. I did want to make a quick comment about our earlier conversation on slips versus skids, especially low to the ground. To be clear, both slipping and skidding can lead to a spin if somebody stalls an airplane. It is true that skids tend to be more dangerous than slips, but again, be sure that you do not take that as a license to get dangerously uncoordinated in either situation. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you were one of the people being recorded, I thank you. If you were one of the people that we edited out of this recording, I beg your forgiveness. There were many reasons that this episode may have been edited, including length, audio quality, and accuracy. 
we don't always have the right answers. I ask you to view this as entertainment and not as a replacement for formal instruction or advice. If you want to send constructive feedback or if you have questions, feel free to contact us through our website, landingswithaflare.com. You can view announcements on our Instagram account, landingswithaflare. You can also join our live conversations on Clubhouse in the club pilot flight training. If you got value out of this podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a positive review. Wherever you are in the world, we wish you happy landings.